6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. The book of Job, chapter 36 verse 27 and 28, makes an interesting remark. That, with this verse, gives us our hydrological cycle. Job says, speaking of God, in verse 36, For he maketh small the drops of water. They pour down rain according to the vapor thereof, which clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. All the rivers are on the sea, but the sea is not yet full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. How? By evaporation, clouds, and distilling. And see, you and I take that for granted, but it was the Greek philosopher Theophrastus, and this is about the 4th century B.C., who was credited with correctly describing the hydrological cycle operating the atmosphere with evaporation and condensation. And it was the Roman architect and engineer Marcus Vitruvius, who lived about the time of Christ, who by studying the works of Theophrastus, then extended and conceived what's now generally accepted as the theories of the hydrological cycle. Now, what's fascinating to me about this, this, of course, is much earlier, by, you know, a thousand years earlier, and yet it's in the Scripture. One of the things that fascinates me, the more I study the Bible, having come from a technological background, is two things. Not only do we find, all laced all through the Scripture, anticipations of discoveries that have been made since. That's part A. And an example of that is Matthew Fontaine Mari who read in the Psalms in Isaiah that there are pathways in the sea. And he became so fascinated by that as a youth that he became, he joined the Navy in those days, became an oceanographer. He founded the science of oceanography. He got, when he got to power, he, uh, rank enough, he got the ships all collect data. And he, Mari, Matthew Fontaine Mari, is considered by many, many countries, not just America, as the father of oceanography. What's interesting, his preoccupation discovering that there are currents, there are pathways in the sea, was from his study of the Scripture. So there's all kinds of, all through the Scripture, there's anticipations of scientific discoveries, some amazing ones. But the flip side's also true. What's astonishing about the Bible is you find no errors. That's especially interesting in medicine, because Moses was taught by the head all the wisdom of the Egyptians. You can go through the things that they taught in those days, and they're absurd. What's amazing, none of them creep into the Scripture. The Scripture is clear. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't some problem passages that require a little study, but it's amazing to see that uh, as a evidence, if you will. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. Eye is not satisfied with the seeing, nor ear with the filling. That The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Well, now, I have a problem with that. See, he, he's saying if nothing changes, that's his argument, then it's reasonable to conclude that nothing in this world is new. In the days of Solomon, people communicated by a foot messenger. You would travel at the speed of horseback, and you'd be wearing clothing from an agrarian economy. You go 
several thousand years later to George Washington. He would communicate with foot messenger. He would travel at the speed of horseback. And he was clothed with the uh, with an agrarian economy. But you advance from President Washington to say, our current president, or our, our time, put it that way, we communicate at the speed of light. We travel at the speed of sound. And we wear clothes made of molecules that we've designed. So, and you have to recognize you and I are surrounded by, in fact, dependent upon uh, marvels of science from not only just telephones, pacemakers, miracle drugs, what have you. I can't imagine Solomon somehow watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon and say that nothing is new under the sun, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll deal with that further as we go. So understand, this is Solomon's view. He's making a point, but recognize there's a limit, the point he's really trying to make here. Because there obviously are new things, but maybe that new things in another sense. And that's what we'll be getting into. All things are full of labor. And it's better translated, by the way, all things are not full of labor. That's misleading. Are wearisome. That's really the way it should be translated. That all things in life are monotonous and futile is what he's trying to say. No matter where one looks in nature, you find tiresome, ceaseless rounds of activity. Man always wants something new. Why? Because everything in this world brings weariness. He's looking to get an escape from that weariness. That was even true in, uh, remember in Acts chapter 17 in Paul's day. The Greeks were spending their time in nothing else but, uh, but either to tell or hear something, some new thing. Man has always been questing new things. And no matter how many new things you get, you're still dissatisfied with life. That's really what Solomon's point is. The entertainment industry thrives on or always questing some kind of new thing, some kind of escape from the, the routine. When we get to chapter 3, Solomon is going to delve into this whole issue. Why are we so dissatisfied with life? And one reason is because God has put eternity in our hearts. And we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 3. August, St. Augustine says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. This, shape, you know, this God-shaped vacuum idea articulated by Pascal or Augustine has deep, deep roots. And you won't rest with the latest gadgets or the latest entertainment. You'll always be dissatisfied. The only thing you'll be satisfied when you hear the voice of God, when you get to respond to Jesus' invitation, come unto me and I will give you rest, what Jesus says. The thing that, that, that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. Uh, Dr. Ironside said, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. <laughs> Whatever's new is really, really a, a recombination of the old, because man can't really truly, in the true sense, create anything new. Because yeah, man is, not, is the creature, not the creator. And that's really what he's trying to get across. And uh, even Thomas Alva Edison, who regarded as one of the great inventors, he pointed out his adventure are only bringing out the secrets of nature and applying them for the happiness of mankind. Only God can create new things, and when you become a creature in Christ, you are made a new thing. We become new creatures. That's why Romans can say we walk in newness of life. And that's why the psalm can say we sing a new song. We enter God's presence by a new and living way, as the book of Hebrews would say it. And one day, you and I are going to see a new heaven and a new earth. And we probably have no capacity to imagine just how new that's going to be. 
God says in, in Revelation, Behold, I make all things new, really new. But Solomon goes on, Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath been already of old, <laughs> old time, which was before us. He says the reason things are seem new is because we have poor memories. <laughs> he says there's no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are uh, that are to come with those uh, that uh, shall come after. Solomon wrote uh, about principles here. There's a old couplet that says, Methods are many, principles are few. Methods always change, but principles never do. And that's really what he's dealing with here. Marcus Aurelius, those of you that saw the gladiator know who Marcus Aurelius is, said, They that come after us will see nothing new. They that went before us saw nothing more than we have seen. Painfully true that the ancients have stolen all our best ideas. <laughs> okay, so... And what Psalm, next Psalm is going to argue that what's observable in nature is true, that nothing happens or the done that is really new. They're only apparently new. That's really what he's trying to say. Hegel said it another way. History teaches us that man learns nothing from history. Some examples of, uh, uh, I think that, that most of the commentators make the note that Psalm did not intend by this to deny human creativity, but to deny the complete newness of man's accomplishments. For example, the journey to the moon and the discovery of America are certainly different. Uh, they involve explorations of distance places at, at substantial risks. The invention of dynamite and, and the atomic bomb share the element of being a, a explosive of, of different magnitudes. But the distinctive is that we're doing nothing more than escalating the scale within the boundaries of our restricted environment. We're down to verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search by wisdom concerning all the things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. He, I gave my heart to seek and to search. He's going to try to get to the root of it by seeking it. He's going to explore it from all sides. That's the search. We're listening here to the wisest of all men, and he's trying to apply his God-given wisdom to the problem. But again, it's it's his wisdom, not God's. He described life as sore travail, a grievous task in the New King James, that only it fatigues you, that it may be exercised. Now, it's interesting, when God first brought man on the earth, it was not cursed. Much of what we're seeing here is derivative of the fact that we're dealing with a cursed earth. And the day will come. We read earlier in the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains in Romans 8. And this is one reason why life is so difficult. Now, when the Lord returns, the Lord is going to deliver us from that bondage of decay, from that, from that curse. As myself, as an example, see, I'm created by the image, in the image of God, I'm saved by the grace of God, and I continually, despite all that, complain with the little annoyances in life. But one day... I will be like our Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason alone, I should now be singing God's praise rather than grumbling about the little annoyances. Psalm says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And boy, he could say that because he was king, prosperous, could do anything he wanted to. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. This uh, vexation of spirit in verse 14 
is not a good translation. A better translation is striving after wind. You're striving after it, you get it, and you discover it's wind. Or feeding upon the wind is another way. And of course, it's a, re- it's, it's a reference to the aimlessness, the futility of human activity, which no one can ever seem to lay hold of real satisfaction. One of the great discoveries I think many of us make is you don't get real satisfaction until what you're doing is for other people. Many people get some level of satisfaction by starting to get involved in, in activities where they directly can benefit others, where their focus is on others, not themselves. That's a step. But even there, that has its limitations, has its frustrations. See the workaholic that we're all familiar with? The alcoholic that we're all familiar with? Are symptoms of the same thing, running away from reality, living on substitutes. Yes, a career. Yes, and even charitable work can be a substitute. And that bubble illusion someday will burst. And uh, we make harder as we try to escape. Instead of running away from life, we should run to God and let Him make life worth living. Most of the commentators that digress on this also end up talking one of the ultimate doors of escape is suicide. Uh, some specialists indicate that we have about 40,000 persons that commit suicide every year in, the, in this country. For each one of those, there's about 10 that make an attempt. And I can speak to that. I won't get morbid and dwell on it all, but there was a time when uh, everything we had built crumbled. That we had many, many millions of dollars of assets. We had We were on top of the world. And through some circumstances, we facing bankruptcy. And uh, the insight there is that finances is just a small part of it. Identity is a great deal part of it. And I can remember vividly, we lived up in the mountains, I can remember vividly driving down the long road down the mountains to the city where we were engaged in various things, And as I drove down that mountain, I realized I still had, despite all the other problems, I had a $5 million key men policy on me that would solve everybody's problems. And I can remember so vividly driving down that road, mountain road, in which every oncoming car was an opportunity. And I hope I never forget that feeling. I remember, too, on April 30th of that following year, when that policy expired, it was like a load was taken off. It took away my excuses. But that was not a mood I went through for a day or two. That was almost a year when I found myself dwelling on that kind of escape. And there's only one thing, really, that kept me from doing something stupid. And that was the realization that God's in control. He's either in control or not. And... uh I wasn't about to take away his control with my self-will. And I think I found that in my life, almost every day, God finds a different way to ask the question, do you trust me? And I'll never forget that, uh, that, that era when we went through that dark valley. And, uh, I remember hearing on the radio, Christian singer saying, in the voice of God saying, I will be with you, for that's who I am. Now, once you've chosen 
to live and rightly rejected suicide as an option, then you have to choose how you're going to live. Will it be by faith in yourself and what you can do? Big mistake. Or will it be by faith in the Lord? Here's a guy who could do anything. Here's Solomon with all the wisdom of the world. Here's a guy with all the riches that the world could offer. Here's a guy that had everything imaginable and found it empty, found it vanity. And that's the point he's really going to make, is that looking to those things, looking to the kinds of things that we can see with our eyes, ain't where it's at. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting or short cannot be numbered. Now, Solomon obviously was an expert on Proverbs. We know that from 1 Kings 4. He probably quoted a popular saying here to make his point. He'll make a similar statement in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. See, what Solomon's saying, in effect, is the past can't always be changed and it's foolish to fret over what might have been done. Ken Taylor in the Living Bible paraphrases this, verse 15, says, What is wrong cannot be righted. It is water over the dam and there's no use thinking what might have been. John Greenleaf Whittier said it a, 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 another way that's well known. Of all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. I'm always reminded of the race driver that the first thing he did before the race was to rip out the rearview mirror and throw it out the window and turn to his partner and says, what's behind us doesn't matter. And we should, in some respects, there's a sense at least in which that might be a good mode of life as long as we learn the lessons of the past. Don't repeat them. Reinhold Niebuhr said it another way in the famous prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. What Psalm is not responding to, something we should know, is that God has the power to straighten out that which is twisted. He has the power to supply what is lacking. He can't change the past, but He can change the way the past affects us. See, for the lost sinner, the past is like a heavy anchor that uh, drags him down. But for the child of God, the past, even with its sins and mistakes, is a rudder that guides us forward. Faith makes the difference. And again, Solomon's looking at all these things from his vantage point under the sun, not under heaven. And that's why they seem insoluble. See, when he was ministering here on the earth, the Lord often straightened out what was twisted and provided that which was lacking. And there's lots of examples uh, of that. We can't do that by our own wisdom or power. And, uh, of course, with God, nothing shall be impossible. Well, let's go on to verse 16. Psalm says, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to a to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is the vexation of spirit, or grasping at wind, if you will. To know wisdom, he says in verse 17, that was interesting, he says, he's seeking to determine the standard by which one can tell what's wise and what's foolish. Not simply to know both sides of this, the question. Okay, for in much wisdom is much grief. Wow. I thought we'd go after wisdom. In born much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. See, those who go through life living on explanations will always be unhappy for two reasons. First, this side of heaven, there are some things for which there are no explanations. 
And God is under no obligation to explain them. And even if he did, we probably wouldn't understand it. Uh, if we're dependent upon explanations, we're going to be frustrated. The second reason we'll be frustrated is God has ordained that his people live on promises, not on explanations. By faith, not by sight. And Lord Jesus said, Blessed are they that have not seen and they that believe. What's interesting is if anybody was ever equipped to solve difficult problems of life and tell us what life was all about, Solomon was that person. He was the wisest of men. People came from all over the world to hear his wisdom. We'll see that in 1 Kings 4. His wealth was beyond calculation. And he had the resources or anything he wanted to do. He experienced madness and folly. The absurd, the opposite of wisdom. All this in his quest for right answers. But these advantages that Solomon had did not enable him to find the answers to the questions he was seeking. In fact, his wisdom just added to his difficulties because he realized how much he knew and yet he also realized how much he would never know. That's sort of, in a flippant sense, when we mean when we say a pessimist is the one that has more information. <laughs> See, some people who never really ponder the problems of life, who never wrestle with these things, they live innocently from day to day, they never feel the pain of wrestling to try to gain this understanding. And the more we seek knowledge and wisdom, the more we realize how ignorant we really are. And all this goes back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember the lure the, that Satan used to Adam and Eve? If she ate the fruit, she would have the experiential knowledge of good and evil. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they did get that experiential knowledge of good and evil. But they did it at the expense of being alienated from God. That knowledge only added to their sorrows. And it's been that way with man ever since. See, whether it be jet planes or insecticides or television, every advance in human knowledge and achievement only creates a whole new set of problems for society in the philosophical or moral sense. See, so for some people, life indeed is monotonous and meaningless, but it doesn't have to be. That's going to be the message of this book. For the believer, life is an open door, not a closed circle. There are daily experiences of blessings from the Lord, and we can't explain everything, but then our life is not built on explanations, it's built on faith. It's built on promises, and boy, we have plenty of promises in the Word. The scientist tells us the world is closed and nothing has changed. The historian tells us that life is a closed book and nothing is new. The philosopher tells us that life is a deep problem and nothing is understood. <laughs> but the good news is that Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he has miraculously broken into history. He's entered time to bring us new life if we trust him. If we're living in circles, it's time for us to turn our life over to Him. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank You, Father, for the book of Ecclesiastes, Father, but we also thank You that we don't have to limit our horizon to that which is under the sun. We thank You, Father, that our lives are not futile, empty, monotonous, 
because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for this shortcut that this book gives us to the pursuit of real values. We thank you, Father, for this record of Solomon's frustrations, of Solomon's open questions that he never got answers to. We thank you, Father, that you have given us the answers to all of these things in the person of your Son. We thank you, Father, that we can have rest. We can have identity in you. We thank you, Father, that you have loved us so much as to provide that destiny that is so beyond our understanding and yet is just there for the asking. Father, we do pray that through your Holy Spirit you would increase in each of us a hunger and an appetite not for the knowledge of the world but for the knowledge that's in your word. We pray, Father, that you would help each of us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to to grow into and attain those things which are imperishable, that are forever. And we thank you, Father, that you have provided a destiny for us that's in your presence through the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask your very special blessing on each of us here, Father, that your purpose would be accomplished in each of our lives as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation, indeed in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.